Welcome to the We Talk Health Podcast, the official podcast for West Tennessee Healthcare. Please be advised that this podcast is not intended to replace any medical advice. Always follow your medical professional's advice and direction. Nothing said in this podcast is intended to supersede or supplement the direction of your medical caretakers. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at wetalkhealthpodcast at gmail.com and we will do our best to answer any questions you may have. Welcome to another episode of We Talk Health. My name is Will Castrogrow, and joining me in the studio today is Dr. Jonathan Braun. He is a vascular surgeon at Jackson Surgical Associates for West Tennessee Healthcare. Dr. Braun, how's it going? Going well. Glad to be here. Good. Thanks for coming in today. So we're going to be talking about PAD, or I guess PAD, maybe is what it's known as, otherwise known as peripheral artery disease. See how many times I can screw saying that up. But before we do, I want to get to know you a little bit better. So tell me what you do for the hospital and then what you like to do when you're not at work, whether family, uh, dog, hunting, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, as you said before, I'm a vascular surgeon, which basically means that well, we take care of uh, the arteries and veins pretty much all over the body, okay. pretty much everywhere except on the heart or inside the skull. Uh, and that can be anything from medical management, exercise therapy, endovascular procedures like balloons, stents, angiograms, okay. things like that that people are familiar with, endovascular aneurysm repairs, uh, all the way to big open surgeries like people are familiar with, like bypasses, mm-hmm. open aneurysm repairs, carotid surgeries. Okay. I always tell people the uh, when they're asking about bypass, I'll say, you know, I do tend to do the bypasses everywhere except the ones, again, right on the heart. Gotcha. Right. So right. that's what I do. I've been here in Jackson for a little over two and a half years. Okay. I uh, moved here right before COVID, and so that was a, a great time to well, get great, to... Yeah, well, uh, welcome. <laughs> yeah. So Where are you um, from? So I came out here from Houston. Okay. I'd been in practice there for about three and a half years. Uh, I did my training before that out in uh, Arizona, University of Arizona in cool. Tucson. Cool. And then okay. I did my medical school out in Texas. Gotcha. So uh, we've, we've really enjoyed it. Uh, when I moved here, uh, we had four children, and... COVID happened. We have five children. And <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of times outside of work, that's really a lot of what I'm doing yeah. is, is you'll see me out of the soccer fields or the baseball fields or picking up, you know, one of my daughters from yeah. dance classes. You know, I've got my oldest is uh, involved in ballet arts and will be you know, in the Nutcracker again this year and that's you know, awesome. the spring show. So You're telling me a, norm- a surgeon is just a normal dude? At, yeah, at, at home, I'm dad, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that doesn't change. Sure, well, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, well, cool. Like I said, we're going to talk about PAD, or peripheral artery disease. So we'll just start off with the big question, which is, what is that? What is peripheral artery disease? Sure. Atherosclerosis is basically whenever you have uh, plaque that has built up inside the arteries. This usually happens over time, over several decades. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the common things we think of that contribute to it, you know, history of smoking, just getting older, high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol. And so when, uh, when we have that same sort of process, we'll use different names to describe it if it's in a different sort of vessel. So if it happens in the arteries on your heart, we call it coronary artery disease. Okay. If it happens in the arteries out in your arms and legs, we'll call it peripheral artery disease. If it happens in the arteries in your neck, we'll call it cerebrovascular disease. But it's basically gotcha. okay. that same sort of process affecting the, the arteries, you know, going to your arms and legs. Most of the time when people talk about peripheral artery disease, 
they focus a lot on the arteries going to the legs because that's a more common clinical problem. Gotcha. Okay. How do you diagnose peripheral artery disease? So a big portion of it is just what we call a standard history and physical. So we'll talk about what's going on, what sort of symptoms people have. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, in many ways, the best way to, to diagnose is really with a conversation and a physical exam. Because uh, a lot of the decisions that we do based off of how we might look at treating it is going to be based much more on that history, that conversation, and that physical exam than it would be off of any of the other tests we may do. Gotcha. A lot of times nowadays we'll also wind up with people who are diagnosed with peripheral artery disease either because they happen to get another imaging study for something else. They had belly pain, for instance, and mm -hmm. they had a CT scan, and that CT scan shows that they've got plaque going in the arteries to their legs. Um, and so they would have peripheral artery disease but no symptoms. We'll also see it uh, diagnosed with different non-invasive tests uh, that can be done in the office. The standard test that we tend to use is something called an ABI or ankle brachial index. Okay. It's basically just a comparison of the blood pressure in your arm compared to the blood pressure down in your foot. And so in a normal person, those should be pretty close to similar blood pressures. Mm -hmm. And what we find is that if you have a lot more plaque in the arteries going to your legs, the blood pressure that we measure in your foot is going to be lower than the blood pressure that we oh. measure in your arm. And so we compare those two. And so based off of that, you'll get an index. So if okay. they're the exact same, it would be one. Um, and normal is considered anything from 0 0.9 to 1.3. And then less than that would be considered abnormal and diagnostic of peripheral artery disease. Wow. Gotcha. I didn't know that you could even do comparisons from the arm to the ankle yeah. or to the foot. That's yeah. What's really fun is actually uh, we, we have specialty cuffs that uh, are designed to go on the, the toe. And so we'll actually what? measure the blood pressure <laughs> in your big toe. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually especially really important when we're dealing with patients who have foot wounds or diabetes and neuropathy and things like that. Sure. Because most of the data about who has enough blood flow in order to be able to heal a wound the, the best data that we have for that is really based off of that toe pressure. And so that's kind of one of the nice things that we have in our office is the ability to get those and get that, get that objective uh, measurement. Because there's, there's some people who you know, have diabetes and have a foot wound that have excellent blood flow. Mm -hmm. And then the problem is we've just got to get you know, either the diabetes under control or maybe they have neuropathy and we've got to get them a, a better diabetic shoe. Sure. Um, and other times people have you know, those problems and peripheral artery disease. And if we don't get that peripheral artery disease taken care of, that mm -hmm. wound will get worse. And, and, and then, you know, we run, start running the risk of getting an amputation. Yeah. If I do have diabetes and uh, PAD, does that mean I'm for sure going to have an amputation? So it's not that you're for sure going to have an amputation. And, and in fact, that's the main goal of what we really work to do is to try to prevent an amputation. So that combination of peripheral artery disease and diabetes puts you at a little higher risk category. Um, it does, um, you know, a lot of times if you have that in neuropathy, right, again, we'll do a lot of preventive work. Sure. You know, I had, uh, I remember my, my fifth grade social studies teacher, Mr. Sharan, used to always tell us uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And in fifth grade, I had no idea what that meant. But now <laughs> after in practice, yeah. I'm sitting there going like that makes, uh, Mr. Sharan was very wise. Um, wow. And so we'll do a lot of uh, sort of that sort of preventive work. And so if we can identify who's at higher risk, um, you know, we can help prevent things, you know, progressing to more severe disease. And the advantage is uh, most of the time the best way to do that is not with a procedure. It's not with, you know, having to go in the hospital or have an open surgery or balloons or stents. Mm -hmm. um, if you 
are not having any sort of symptoms or problems. It's mostly just about awareness and risk factor modification and, and just taking it from there. Yeah. I had a doctor on here one time talking, and I, I cannot remember his name right now, but uh, he's a, a heart surgeon. And he said, if, if you don't take time for your health, you will have to make time for your illness later on in life. Yeah, that's Which kind of sounds similar to what yeah. uh, your teacher was saying. So what are some of the symptoms of PAD? So one of the common symptoms is when you have pain in the muscles in your legs that comes on when you walk a certain distance mm -hmm. and will go away typically with a minute or two of rest. And so the term for this is something called claudication. But it basically what's happening is it's a very similar process to what happened when you were younger and you were running wind sprints and you get that side stitch. Mm -hmm. Is essentially when your body is at rest, your muscles and all the tissues have enough blood flow in order to do all their sort of day-to-day -day regular things. Sure. But then when you start asking them to do additional work, such as when you're walking, those muscle is requiring additional oxygen, additional blood flow to get there. If it can't quite get enough to do that, it'll keep doing that work, but it switches over to a different type of metabolism that builds up an acid in your muscle. And so that hurts. And so then when you stop and rest, the blood flow is allowed to sort of catch up mm -hmm. and it cleans up that acid, clears everything out, doesn't leave any lasting damage. Is that essentially lactic acid? Yes, that's lactic acid. Gotcha, yep. okay. Yep. Cool. And so, so when that lactic acid is cleared out, you know, the symptoms go away. And so, you know, that's often kind of the first thing, you know, people will notice, especially, and I notice this more for people who, one of their main risk factors is that they either currently smoke or used to smoke. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we will tend to see sometimes different manifestations of peripheral artery disease in that patient population as opposed to, say, somebody whose main risk factor is uh, diabetes or uh, kidney problems. Gotcha. Okay. So let's say that it has been determined that I have peripheral artery disease. I come in to see you uh, in the clinic. How, what does treatment look like for me? Sure. A lot of times in the clinic, uh, that first evaluation for people with peripheral artery disease is you know, one of the longest clinic appointments I have because mm -hmm. a lot of it is really having to sit down and, and do some of the education, have some of the conversations to where we're at. Because as I said before, the mainstay that we use for sort of determining how we treat things is based off of that history and physical. So there's a lot of that I have to learn about that patient sure. and, and a lot of information that we'll discuss about sort of the plan going forward. And so what I'll do is uh, I typically tell people we, we classify people with peripheral artery disease into sort of four different classifications. So the first okay. one of the people who have peripheral artery disease and no symptoms, right? For them, the main treatment is just, you know, stopping smoking, risk factor modification, you know, getting their blood pressure under control, diabetes under control, that sort of thing. Gotcha. Then there's people who have claudication. Um, and so that's the pain that comes on when they walk, that goes away when they rest. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be just in the muscle groups. Um, and so for them, if they're still smoking, one of the biggest things that we can do is if we can help them get to where they're not smoking anymore, data has shown that it will, on average, double their pain-free walking distance. So wow. if you okay. are currently smoking and you can walk a block before you start having pain, if I could do nothing other than snap my fingers and uh, turn you into a former smoker, on average, it'll get you to two blocks before you have to stop. Wow. Okay. So the other thing that we'll do is we'll work on a walking program. And so this is walking until that pain starts to come on, letting that 
you know, pain get up to about a six or seven out of mm-hmm. ten. Right, it has to hurt a little bit, but then pause, let it die down, and then resume walking to sort sure. of rinse and repeat. That actually trains the muscles in getting more efficient at using the oxygen that they're getting, okay. as well as helps the body develop collateral pathways around some of the plaque that you already have. So we find if we combine that with the smoking cessation, now we're talking about triple the walking distance. Yeah. And okay. so I've had a lot of patients, even people who've had previous surgeries for their claudication, uh, that we can manage successfully that way, and they're able to get to where they you know, are able to live you know, a, a essentially a normal life. Yeah. Um, and that, that average is just that. It's an average, right? I've had some people where we do this, and it doesn't help as much. I've had other people where we do this, and I see them six months later, and they're doing mile hikes. Mm-hmm. So wow. the advantage of it is you know, we do it because it works, and it basically has one of the lowest risk profiles of anything that we can do. Mm-hmm. It's also really durable. You know, once we start going to where we do things like balloons or stents or bypasses, and one of the things I'll tell my patients is, you know, nothing lasts as long as the arteries God gave you. Sure. Right. And so the long, the, the more mileage that we can get out of those, the better that is long term in terms of your leg. Yeah. And so, so we'll have, you know, and, and sometimes we get to where we do all those things and it's still just, you know, it's disabling. You're like, I can't work. I can't take care of my kids. I can't do these other things. I, you know, we've tried doing this and then we'll talk about doing some of those things like balloons or stents Mm -hmm. um, or other surgeries. So then usually I'll draw this little line kind of right below that. And then, then I'll start talking about, then there's people who have uh, ischemic rest pain. So this is pain that comes on usually in the toes or the top of your foot. Okay. occur generally when the foot is up so most of the time people notice it at night mm-hmm. right, when they're laying in bed and they'll go away when the foot is down okay and so uh, i always tell people if you find that either you're waking up multiple times a night because of that pain you know in your foot or the other trick that you'll see is that you you're sort of sleeping with that leg hanging out of the bed so that mm-hmm. way you can get some rest then that's typically what we're talking about and so that's you know more severe disease you know and so then we tend to be talking a little bit sooner about some of these other interventions and then that last category are people who have non-healing wounds so a wound that takes longer than two to three weeks to heal gotcha and so those last two categories those are the people that if we don't get better blood supply to them soon they're at higher risk of losing their legs Mm -hmm. those first two categories the people who have no symptoms or who have just pain that comes on uh, with walking goes away with rest, they are at, they're not at any increased risk of losing their leg. And so what we do is, you know, again, we're sort of maximizing those other things. And we know that the longer that we can go without something else, the longer that that, that they, uh, the better that they do in terms of reducing the risk of amputation. And we had suspicion of this for many years. Mm-hmm. And really, it's been within the last five to seven years that we've actually really had some good data in some large studies, some out of New Zealand, you know, some others based off of some data out in the United States Mm -hmm. that shows that the people who have the claudication, if they're intervened on sooner with things like balloons and stents, they actually have a higher amputation risk at five years compared to the people that we can initially manage Ah. with smoking cessation and medical therapy. Yeah. Okay. I always tell people it's like, you know, you'll, you know, with the stent, right, you'll feel better tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. But you're paying for that a few years down the road because, again, that lifespan of that stent, depending on where it's located, right, that may not last, but, you know, one year, two years, you know, some of them last a lot longer. But then when that stent goes down, you'd love if all it did is brought you back to where you were today. Mm-hmm. It typically doesn't, and it'll typically take some collateral damage along with it. Wow. So then, okay. we're, then we start this sort of snowball 
uh, fact, and we can wind up in places that we didn't really want to be. Sure. Um, and so that's one of the big reasons why we, you know, we spend a lot of time maximizing that non-procedure-based uh, intervention for claudication. Yeah, it makes sense. Because that's, you know, saving your leg in the future. Yeah, so if a stent does fail, is the yeah. first step potentially adding another stent? Or yeah, yeah, we, we do that sometimes. Okay. You know, it's uh, a lot of it has to do with the with the anatomy as to where things are at. Um, I always tell people, you know, when we've done procedures in the past, if you notice a, a change all of a sudden, you'll come in and let us know because sure. uh, especially if it's within the first two to three weeks, we may be able to get just that previous stent open, mm -hmm. and we can figure out was there a was there an underlying problem you know that just needs to be treated with a balloon or maybe with another stent, but we can oftentimes get that open with a lot less of a procedure than if say I, we find out about it three months later. Yeah, gotcha. Right? Okay, people in the South particularly, I, I feel like tend to be a little more stubborn when it comes to going to see their doctor for issues. Maybe it's all over, but I, I've lived here all my life, so I just notice it more here. But what happens in the event that I feel like I have a problem, but ah, I'm fine. I don't want to go see a doctor. Yeah. What, is it, what does that look like for me when I do eventually go see you? Yeah, I always tell people, you know, especially at those last two categories, right? It's, it's about time and about risk. Mm -hmm. you know, we, don't, we don't have a crystal ball, right? We don't know exactly when we're going to be in a situation where we're at that we don't have any other option stage. But especially in those stages, the sooner that we can get in and get that evaluated and, and get that treated, the lower risk we have of potentially losing the leg. Mm -hmm. You know, that in those first two categories, I always tell people it's better if we can get you in sooner because then we can get you started on sort of the, the right treatment path. Sure. And one of the big things is reducing the risk of that progressing to much more severe disease. I always tell people. If, if the first time I see you is keeping you above that line where you're not at an increased risk of losing your leg, mm -hmm. then my big focus is keeping you above that line. Sure. Right? And if sense. you're below that line, then my, my goal is to get enough blood flow that we get you out from below that line. Everything is about trying to reduce that amputation risk. Yeah. What harms can come from over-treatment of PAD? And so we kind of talked about this a little bit kind of in that, in that claudication segment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've seen this in multiple places that I've been before. We have this sort of thought of if it's if it's a problem, you know, can we just go ahead and fix it now, yeah. right? Uh, before it becomes kind of you know one of those big problems, and that you know I think part of that comes from we have you know the, there's this analogy peripheral artery disease, you know atherosclerotic disease is kind of like you know if you buy an old house right and you turn the water on in the bathroom and mm -hmm. you get that rusty colored water coming mm -hmm. out. It's not just the pipes in your bathroom that are a problem, right? It's going on through the house. You just happen to notice it in the bathroom first, sure. right? And so in that sort of situation, right, if we have the resources, we have the time, we may consider, you know, changing out a lot of the pipes in the house or replumbing a good, good chunk of the house in order to not be dealing with this piecemeal over the, uh, uh, over the rest of the time that we're going to be in that house. But in peripheral artery disease, it, it works the opposite mm -hmm. um, to where because any of the interventions that we do, as soon as we do it, I always tell people, it starts the clock, mm -hmm. right? And we know... When that clock runs out is, is basically when that intervention that we did is going to fail. Okay. Right? And so it may be a different clock based off of, you know, what size artery we're treating or how we treated it or anything like that. Um, but the body, any of those interventions that we do, uh, in addition to potentially plaque coming back, the body also starts this repair process. Mm -hmm. And so that repair process leaves kind of a, a scar or callus. And sometimes that scar or callus will continue to build 
you know, long after the that that treatment was done, mm-hmm. and so um, that tends to be one of the big things that affects the how long some of these stents and other procedures last is that scar tissue, and we. You know, we've been dealing with that for for decades. Um, you know, you see the same sort of process with bypasses, where you'll have that scar tissue develop where you've sewn the bypass in, or mm-hmm. if you've used your own vein for the bypass, sometimes kind of where those valves were in the veins, you'll get scar tissue that forms there. And so, if somebody winds up with a, a treatment that's able to sort of stop that that scar tissue process, that's going to be great. It's going to revolutionize a lot of what we do. But yeah. and people have been looking at that for decades, and. There are some things that we can do now that seem to be better than tools that we used to have, you know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we use balloons and stents that have uh, certain chemotherapy medications on them oh, wow. okay. that will help blunt that scar tissue response. The fancy term is uh, neo-entomal hyperplasia, but again, it's basically just the body's scar tissue response inside the vessel from something that's been done to it. And so we'll use those chemotherapy medications on certain cases Mm -hmm. in order to help prevent that from coming back. Again, it's one of those things where you don't really want to use it all the time, but in selected cases and in selected situations, it can be helpful. Yeah. I know you've touched on this uh, some already, but uh, what are some of the ways that I can reduce my risk? So one of the big ones is smoking cessation. Sure. Right. So... I, I always tell my patients when having the, the conversation on, on smoking is I'm no saint. And if my doctor told me I could never have a bacon cheeseburger again, I'd pretty much tell him to get lost. Right? <laughs> sure. So yeah. I go, we're, there's, there's a lot of things that we're, you know, would probably be good for us, right? If we we're all on Mediterranean diets and, you mm-hmm. know, you know, drank plenty of water, we'd all be doing better, but exercise an hour a day. Right. Like know. all these things that we all know that we should do that, you know, even I don't always do. Right. Sure. sure. And so, I go, but the, the smoking is the one that, you know, we'll actually spend some time talking about it. And I always tell people, you know, I'm not doing it to, to browbeat you, but if I didn't bring it up, I wouldn't be doing my job either. Yeah, right? that's fair. And so uh, we'll kind of have a conversation about it. The other thing that I like doing with patients is, uh, you know, celebrating the small wins, right? Mm-hmm. So if you, if you were a two-pack-a-day smoker and you're down to a half a pack a day over the last six months, yeah. I mean, would I love for you to be like entirely not smoking? Absolutely, right? But at that point, you know, you've made huge amounts of progress, oh, yeah, right? And you sure. can start, you know, once people have, you know, made those strides and they start seeing kind of the benefits that they've had, you know, all of a sudden that, that light at the end of the tunnel of potentially being able to entirely, you know, get rid of the cigarettes is something that, you know, that's a lot easier to see than it used yeah. to be back when they were a two-pack-a-day smoker. So that's, uh, you know, the smoking situation, like I said, is, is kind of one of the big ones. Um, and the other is really a lot of coordination with the primary care doctors about optimizing your other medications, your other risk, right? So mm-hmm. if you have diabetes, you know, keeping your diabetes under better control will help slow any progression of peripheral artery disease. If you have high blood pressure, same thing, getting that under control. Okay. The medications we tend to use, pretty much anybody who's got evidence of atherosclerotic disease in pretty much any of those beds, the heart, the neck, you know, the arteries going to your legs, we generally recommend being on a statin medication, which okay. is traditionally a cholesterol-lowering medication, okay. and uh, usually a single antiplatelet agent, most commonly a baby aspirin is sufficient. Okay. Okay. And the baby aspirin is basically, well, both these medications, the real reason we do them is because, yes, it may help slow the disease progression in your legs, 
the main benefit we're really getting out of it is reducing your risk of dying. Because what we know is that the thing that will tend to kill people with peripheral artery disease is most commonly heart attacks. Mm -hmm. um, and so these have been shown to reduce your risk of heart attack, stroke, and death. So we have you know, on those sorts of medications for that sort of risk reduction. You know, we continue on them for the peripheral artery disease because it helps slow the disease progression and, and both helps prevent you from getting to a worse state in peripheral artery disease. Sure. And anything that we do, it helps that to last longer. Yeah. Okay. So when it comes to smoking cessation, do you guys often uh, prescribe like Chantix or something, you know, some other kind of smoking, non-smoking medication? Yeah, so in some respects, things I feel like used to be a little bit simpler. What I typically do with patients is, is I'll, I'll do a lot of prescriptions for um, either the, uh, the patches or the gum and usually a combination mm -hmm. of the two. Okay. And one of the big things I, I talk with people is, especially I notice this in people who are kind of right out about pack-a-day smokers, is that um, they'll have tried the patches in the past and they'll have had a lot of headaches and nausea. And that's it's usually because that first level on the patch is probably more nicotine than they've really been getting. And so they wind up actually with uh, with side effects from too much nicotine. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I tend to do uh, a program with them working on a combination of the patches to kind of you know settle that sort of baseline. And then the prescription for the gum for when you really want it, right? Yeah. That first, you know, instead of that first cigarette of the day, you know, you take that one, you know, gum in the mouth, you kind of have that for a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people, they have it in the morning with their cup of coffee or after a meal, right? And it's kind of, you know, you pop one there and you have that really stressful moment. You know, usually a lot of times I tell people is the first two weeks, you know, most people can just kind of willpower their way, their way through it. Sure. Between weeks two and week six is where it's really hard. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, especially when you're just like, I just want to take one, that's a great time to kind of pop that, that gum in the mouth. I tell you, but if I can get you past week six, then my chances of keeping you as a, as a, as a you know, former smoker mm -hmm. go up a lot. Because after about week six, it's finally that hacking cough that you had starting about week two or three finally starts to dissipate a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and you start noticing things that you hadn't really noticed for the last several years. So food has a lot more flavor because you haven't realized that you've lost some of the, the smell mm -hmm. sense because of sort of the baseline level of, of cigarettes. You know, you start noticing it on clothes differently. And so usually if I can get you past that six-week mark, it makes a big difference. Yeah. Because of some of the things that have, have changed in terms of some of the different smoking aids, what I typically do is – We'll try kind of the patches or gum, and then for other things, I'll typically refer to kind of a, uh, a smoking cessation, you know, a helpline or the PCP gotcha. um, for, for some of those additional medications. Because okay. a lot of my patients are on a lot of medications, mm -hmm. and so I'm always really deliberate in terms of, you know, when is the best time to make any changes to those. And, you know, I, I'm a big believer that, you know, sometimes there's just too many cooks in the kitchen, and that's where we wind up in, in some real trouble. And sure, so absolutely. If we're talking about you know medication changes, especially ones that may be interacting with some of the other medications you may be on, mm -hmm. what I do is I, I get that information of our conversation with a primary care doctor, and I say, you know, this is what we've done, this is what we've tried. They're interested in these sorts of things, you know. Uh, you know but I wanted, you know, I kind of want that under one umbrella, so that way. You know, if they're saying, like, well, we had these sorts of things where I know that they've had this adverse reaction to this antidepressant, mm -hmm. so we don't want to do this. We want to try that medication instead. You know, then uh, then I think they're kind of in a better place than yeah. having me prescribe it. Cool. I know a big part of smoking is, like, the oral fixation of the hand to mouth. So 
is there a way that you could like this might be a dumb example but like the movie holes Disney movie Holes that came out 15 years ago. Uh-huh. One of the main characters smoked, and again, it's a movie, so it might not be accurate. But to stop smoking, he was doing sunflower seeds, uh-huh. just doing some sort of oral fixation, yep. hand to mouth. Yep. Is there anything that you would like recommend to people to, to try? Yeah. So I used a bunch of different tricks talking mm-hmm. with people, and that's one of the things where you know sometimes I think a lot of times we'll, we'll tend to sort of you know poo poo sort of like group smoking cessation meetings and that sort of thing. But where the where the advantage really comes on in terms of meeting with other people who are working on smoking cessation is where you get the chance to like share tricks and figure out what worked for somebody else that sure. maybe might work for you. So I've seen people with kind of you know they'll, they'll get a bag of dumb dumb suckers from uh, okay. like Walmart, right? And yeah. so then it's got the little stick out there, mm-hmm. you know, and they kind of have that in there, um, and they'll kind of use that instead. I've seen a toothpick. I've had more than one okay. patients quit with a toothpick um, to kind of help them with that. Yeah, and there there is something about that, and I always. And especially when I'm talking to my patients when they're down to kind of those last four or five cigarettes, like I can pretty much rattle off. It's like you have a cigarette at this time, you have a cigarette at this time, you have a cigarette at this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, and I go at that point, you know, you're sort of past the nicotine dependence stage of it. And now it's, it's kind of the habit and stuff. And so now we're trying to just come up with sort of mental tricks to sort of kind of, you know, get past, you know, that, that point. Um, Gotcha. Okay. If somebody wants to come see you about PAD, do they have to be referred from a PCP or can they come directly to you? Yeah, they can, they can come directly to me. And I've, I've got a decent number of people who have had, who had both anytime. And it's, uh, like I said, it's a lot of times people, you know, will have a hesitancy going to someone that has, you know, surgery in their name. Um, sure. You know, a lot of what I do is actually non-surgical in nature. So I, I, I tell people it's kind of like when you go to a near nose and throat doctor, mm-hmm. a lot of what they're going to do is not necessarily taking you to the operating room. Yeah, sure. Um, but if you need it, they can take care of that. And that's the same kind of thing where we at. Most okay. of what I do is stuff I can either do in the clinic or maybe as an outpatient procedure or, again, just conversations and you know, adjusting medications and, yeah. and exercise there. Awesome. So what's that phone number to call? Sure. So uh, we're at 664 And so we are right on the corner there of Skyline and Highland. Okay. And so we're, we're there on the first floor, and there's myself, and I got my partner, Dr. Nestor Arita, is another vascular surgeon in our group. Excellent guy. Okay. And uh, love to get a chance to, to take care of people. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Dr. Brown, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming in today. I learned a ton about peripheral artery disease that I didn't know. For instance, had no clue about the toe cuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I kind of <laughs> chuckled when you first said that because I'd never heard of that before. And I was like, that sounds ridiculous. Yeah. But obviously it works. Little tiny blood pressure. I bet, yeah. Yep. It's, it's, it's just I'm not clinical, so I don't see this kind of stuff all the time. So when I hear you have a toe cuff that you can use, I'm like, what? That's so cool. So anyway, I, I learned a ton. Hopefully our listeners will learn as much as I did as well. And listeners, if you're looking for that phone number, it's going to be in the description of the podcast, as well as the address to Jackson Surgical Associates, where Dr. Arita and Dr. Baran are at. If you're having any issues, give them a call. They're both fantastic people, and um, they're eager to help you out. So uh, don't hesitate to call. Dr. Braun, this has been great. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of We Talk Health.